for example, I didn't want a big sign saying very bad busker trying to walk across Spain because that felt to me a bit like begging. I wanted to be earning my money. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 379. Opened in 1725, Sobrino de Bodin in Madrid is the oldest continuously running restaurant in the world. And even crazier is the fact that the wood fire in the oven has been burning since they first opened and never been put out. Today's guest, Alistair, proves that you can travel around the world without a lot of stuff, including money. But there's one thing that's very hard to travel around the world without, and that is a piece of luggage. And before I became a quote-unquote professional traveler, I traveled around the world with all different types of luggage. Usually, it was really crappy rolling suitcases that I would buy at TJ Maxx or Target or Home Goods or one of those stores, and inevitably, they would break and I would be left lugging around a 50-pound basically weight because the wheel would break off or, or the handle would pop off or something crazy. And it really, really sucked. Thankfully, about six years ago, I found Tortuga backpacks. And since then, I have been traveling around the world with my favorite carry-on size backpack, the Tortuga backpacks. So if you want to get the best travel carry-on backpack out there, make sure, and this is new, new way to get our EPOP discount, go to tortugabackpacks.com slash EPOP. So in order to get 10% off anything you order at Tortuga Backpacks, make a note of this. This is a new way to do it. Go to tortugabackpacks.com slash EPOP. That will instantly, when you check out, give you 10% off anything you order. Another thing that it becomes very hard to travel without, that is some sort of footwear. But the problem with packing footwear for trips is that usually it takes up so much room in your luggage. Whether you're a guy or a girl throwing shoes in and you throw more than one pair in, it's going to take up a lot of room in your luggage, especially if you're trying to travel in just a carry-on, which you should be. Thankfully, I have finally found a solution. I have found my favorite travel shoes out there. They're called Suaves. They are unisex. They come in a multitude of colors. So whether you're a guy or a girl, it doesn't matter what color you like. Check it out, Suaves, S-U-A-V-S.com. Plus, we have a special discount for you as well. If you go to Suaves.com, all you have to do is use the promo code EPOP, and that is going to get you 15% off any of the shoes you order. These are a godsend. They are the shoes that I have been traveling around with over the last three months now on every trip that I've taken. They are fantastic. Head to Suaves.com, S-U-A-V-S.com. Don't forget to use the promo code EPOP. That'll get you 15% off.
Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone whose accomplishments will make you feel slightly guilty you didn't go to the gym today, since they include cycling around the world for four years, rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, finishing a marathon despite breaking his foot, pulling a 600-pound sled through the empty quarter desert, and just for good measure, completing an unsupported trek across Iceland. It's no wonder he was a 2012 National Geographic Traveler of the Year and Geographic Magazine calls him slightly bonkers, but it's a wonderful thing. Alastair Humphreys from alastairhumphreys.com, an author of 10 books, including the latest My Midsummer Morning. Alastair, thanks for joining me today. And I should tell, tell you, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be back. And I should also put everyone's guilt at ease by saying I'm not in the gym right this minute because I'm talking to you. There you go. So you guys <laughs> feel slightly less guilty. Alistair's taking time off from his crazy adventures to talk to me from his shed. And he was drinking a beer. So now now you, now you, everyone forget about the gym. Go have a beer. Enjoy this chat. Uh, that's the longest intro I've ever done. And here's the crazy part. I still only mentioned about a third of the things that you've actually done. So you've done a lot. And for those of you guys out there who are like, wait, I want to know more about Alistair right away, you can binge. Uh, we did another podcast, episode 43. I had to look this up, Alistair. It was five years ago, June 2014, episode 43, you came on, and we had a, a long chat about everything you were doing then. So if you guys are listening and you want more Alistair, you can check that out. It's called Adventures Big and Small. We're going to get to some of those adventures today, Alistair, but I, the main focus I want to, to do is be on your book, My Midsummer Morning, and why you decided to bus around Spain with no money, despite being unable to really play the violin. So let's like dive into that quickly and then we're going to retrace the steps back because it's been five years since we talked. What, like why, why this midsummer morning idea of busking despite, as you would say, no musical talent? Okay. Uh, yeah, no musical talent is not some sort of modest British understatement. I really am terrible at the violin. There's proof on the internet of how bad I am. So it came about because... I've been doing big adventures, like you mentioned, for about 20 years, more or less. And if you do anything for 20 years, hopefully you get quite good at it. So I'd, I started to realize that after cycling to lots of continents and visiting all sorts of countries, I was quite good at all that stuff. And therefore, I was kind of losing that fear of failure and the uncertainty and the risk and the frightening, scary feeling you get like you're all of people will remember from the first time you go on an adventure, first time you go overseas, that scary terror, ah, feeling. I'd lost all of that in adventure. And I wanted to try and get it back into my life. So I realized I needed to look differently at what adventure meant to me these days. And a book, I've always loved travel books. And the first travel book that I, that really captured my imagination was called, As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning. A young British guy walked through Spain in the 1930s playing his violin, sleep on the hills. It's a beautiful, poetic book. And ever since I'd read it, I thought, oh, I'd love to go do that trip myself. I'd love to go follow him through Spain. It sounds wonderful. But I can't play the violin. And actually performing music or singing karaoke or dancing, anything like that is my absolute terror. That's my big phobia in life. So I kept putting it off because I was too scared. Now or then, as I was trying to think about how I could look differently at adventure, I realized that if I wanted to be scared, uncertain, out of my depth, vulnerable, probably going to fail, all of these things, I needed to look differently at adventure 
In other words, I needed to learn the violin. And I thought what I should do was if to do this trip properly, I should not take my wallet or credit card because if I did, then the violin would just be playing for a bit of fun, really. So to get maximum terror and real pressure, I had to have no money, no credit card and only five very bad little violin songs to pay my way as I walked for 500 miles from northern Spain to Madrid. So just like that, the plan comes to fruition. You think, all right, this is the scariest thing I could do. How long was this percolating your brain, running through your brain before you actually set out on the adventure? So I spent 15 years reading the book, probably about once a year, thinking this would be such a cool trip. Nah, too scary. I can't do it. So it's about 15 years of it drumming around in my head. Then I, when I actually committed to do it, I bought the violin and I had seven months from then until departure date. Um, seven months of practice and lessons and anyone who's got a six-year-old kid will know how painful seven months of violin practice sounds. So after seven months of practicing hard, I was still ter- terrible and terrified and I nearly cancelled the trip because I was so scared. But then I reminded myself that this was the whole point, to arrive in a new country with no plan, knowing nobody, and just trust that the world of adventure and the world of travel would look after me as it had been doing for the last 20 years. So you almost canceled the trip. Was this, do you think, as close as you came to canceling an adventure as any of the others that you have ever done? Well, certainly the first day when I got to Spain and I set up my violin to play in this little town square, which, by the way, is the first time I'd ever played the violin in public before. That, I realized, was the most afraid I'd felt since the day I set off to row across the Atlantic Ocean a few years previously. And I find that really fascinating because rowing the ocean, rowing an ocean is scary. You know, there are sharks and storms and stuff. What I was scared of here was the unknown and worrying what people might think of me and thinking people like me aren't supposed to be doing this sort of stuff and things that are much more vulnerable, which I I expect most listeners have can associate with in their own lives in whatever individual way scares each one of us. But I think it's certainly interesting for anyone who's trying to summon up the guts, summon up the nerve to begin their first overseas travel experience is that you're not alone in finding that quite a daunting experience. Yeah, it's interesting to me that this was such an internal fear, right? This idea of what are people going to think of me? I'm going to be embarrassed. And yet your adventures and a lot of the other things you have done, there's a lot of external factors that could scare you. Sharks, drowning, dying of dehydration in the desert, like all these crazy things that you've done. And yet here you are in this square in Spain, you know, uh, probably as safe as you've ever been on any of your adventures, but feeling as terrified as you ever had in any of the other things that you had done. Yeah, I find it. I found it an absolutely fascinating experience. And without this turning into a psychiatry podcast, I suspect that probably quite a lot of the reasons that I wanted to go explore the world, to tr- see the far off places, to do tough remote things, was in some sense trying to prove myself to myself. Uh, some sort of challenge to myself, also running away from myself, which is hard to do because you're always inside yourself. So for this to be such a deliberately internal um, investigation into what being adventurous felt like was really interesting. And what what I think really stands out is that a lot of the fears and the thrills and the risks of busking in Spain felt identical to, say, walking 
alone across India. So I think that's quite interesting how much of the reasons we travel are actually inside our head. Was the bigger fear of embarrassment, like, was it embarrassment of your playing skill, uh, your playing skills and, and that people were going to, you know, laugh at you and make fun of you? Or during this journey, you also did have, I, I know you, to you, it's probably not as adventurous externally because you know you're in spain relatively safe country stuff like that but you had no money so where how did those two factors like play themselves out and where did they where'd you weigh in on them you got the fear and embarrassment and and that that worry and then oh my gosh i might be sleeping on the street because i have no money what if someone doesn't give me anything tonight it was a mixture of things you know i'm i'm um i'm I very much enjoy laughing at myself. So I ver- and I very much enjoy being a fool and being a bit of an idiot. So I'm quite happy with that side of things. Um, and and I, beneath all of this nervousness and embarrassment, I could also see that the whole thing was hilarious. So I was all right with that. Mostly, I was scared of failing at this project. Um, I was scared of of just people sort of not liking me and frowning at me it's sort of telling me to go away and i i hate that so any anything even vaguely to do with conflict i hate so i didn't like that side of things and then there's just then there's also the uncertainty of thinking wow what will i eat today what where will i sleep tonight uh but that the the sleeping some people on this trip would be worried about having to walk for 500 miles with no idea where you'd sleep only knowing that for sure you're not going to be in a hotel or a hostel because you've got no money. I've spent 20 years sleeping out in the hills. So actually that side of me was me being completely fine and comfortable. The trouble came for me when I dropped down from the hills into the small little villages with no money, having to play to earn my breakfast. That's the part that I found stressful. Yeah, because that's an interesting point. Lots of your adventures involve doing things where there aren't a lot of people around. There's not a lot of interaction. I mean, you could go days on some of your trips purposefully not seeing anyone. And that and that's hard, right? But you, as you mentioned, you got past that because you've done it so much that that isolation, that monotony of walking or rowing or, or pulling the sled, all of that, you've you've kind of grown as accustomed to as, as one could. Here, it's the exact opposite. Now, you have to, like, you're putting yourself in front of people. So now you have to be around people. You have to interact in order to make money. Which do you find harder mentally now that you've you've done both sides of it? Well, I, I find the human social side much harder. I think I'm naturally quite shy and introverted. And, and having to just interact with groups of people and strangers, I find quite difficult relatively difficult i think that's why my career essentially revolves around me being on the internet rather than me being in places actually for example guiding groups on trips just doesn't appeal to me so uh, the solitude i've spent years by myself with no friends i'm i'm can deal with that um but this was the most sociable trip i've ever done it's the trip above and beyond everything else whereby i completely depended upon the goodwill of people now i've traveled enough in the world to have faith in the world and to know that pretty much everywhere I go is safe and friendly and kind. So I'm, I'm well used to that side of things. But this took it a little step further in that I had to stand up, play my violin, knowing that I was terrible. And I wasn't begging. I wasn't saying to people, please give me money. I was just standing there in silence, 
playing my violin, just like you hear on the street in your town. Just and I'm terrible. So it was the only reason anyone would give me money was just pure kindness. And I was just fishing for kindness out in the world. So it was a really uplifting experience as well. When you mentioned that you were scared of failing on this project, what what did you think that looked like? For you, what before you started, what was failure? Well, failure was not making it on foot without any money from Vigo to Madrid. So not completing the 500 mile journey without any money. Now, I'm very stubborn. I'm also quite accustomed to having a miserable time. So I was completely in my head. I was completely up for stealing crusts from cafe tables, eating carrots from farmer's fields, diving in dumpsters. So in reality, I probably wouldn't have failed, um, which is often interesting. We fear failure, we fear failure, fear failure. But if you dive into it more, then you think actually you'd probably be all right. Uh, so I was scared that I would fail the project. That's what worried me. You know, I was in Spain. I wasn't going to starve to death. The absolute worst that would have happened is I'd go to a policeman and say, Senor, I'm really hungry. Please phone the British embassy and get me out of here. So it was never a life and death project. It was more just a, the personal standards of failure that you put on yourself. Did you have a plan coming in of of dates that you wanted to hit or how quickly you wanted to do this? Or was it just open-ended, I'm going to take this as it comes, I'm going to walk when I can, I'm going to take hospitality from folks when I can, and we're going to see where this leads? Most of my trips have been more like expeditions, really. So usually what I do is a mission. So I'm at this point, and I have to get to this point before I die, otherwise I fail. So it's usually start, objective, equals success. And this trip, I was trying to change a lot of things in my life and my head. And so one of the things of this trip was just, I had a month, that's how much time I had available for this. And I had a return ticket from Madrid. But in the meantime, I would just follow my nose and see how far I got. If I didn't get very halfway, then I'd, I'd know, hitch a lift. If I got beyond Madrid, great. I had no pressure upon myself at all for the destination for the first time ever, which was a, took me a while to get used to. I'm quite a routine, mission-driven person, but it was actually really liberating just to be able to go slow if I chose to do so. Yeah, what were some of the first quick lessons that you learned, whether it be from that very first day or very first couple of days? Because you have a month, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that you don't stop learning as you go through, but so much of what you learn can kind of metastasize and congeal. And in those first couple of days, it's, it feels like, hey, I've been here for a month. And you look back, you're like, oh, this is only three days because it's so much life coming at you right away because it's new and you're scared and you have all the fears that you talked about. What were some of those lessons that in, in a few days, you're like, wow, I can't believe that my whole world has been shaken upside down, my whole worldview, maybe. I think you're right that it's a very condensed learning experience. And I spent four years cycling around the world. And people often come up to me at events and, and they want to talk about their cycling experiences. But they always begin it with saying, oh, I didn't do anything like you. I only cycled for I know, a week or a month or whatever. And I always cut them off and say, no, you know everything there is to know about cycling around the world having done a week or a month so i think you're right on that what the main learning i had to do on this was the learning of the skills of busking so knowing where's a good street where good time of day um 
which, which was which of my really bad songs were my specialities uh trying to get eye contact with people trying to get a feel for who were the most generous which was usually uh, retired people generally retired men were the most uh, generous although they never really spoke they just walk give me a coin and walk on um mothers with with small children were quite good if i could catch the kid's eye and distract the kid and the mom would think oh two minutes of peace and quiet and hopefully i'd get a coin out for her for that um so it's most the skills of busking were what i had to learn so quickly um i was very lucky that in my mental locker i already knew how to find a way out of town find somewhere to sleep tonight make sure I had enough water for the night, light a fire, cook my food, go to sleep. So that whole part of the trip was done, parceled away and easy for me. So all of the tricks really were revolving around the musical side, which I'd never done before in my life. I'd barely even ever paid any attention to street performers in my life. I just sort of ignored them uh, as being a bit annoying. But now whenever I see one, I feel obliged to smile and give them money if I have coins. I'm indebted to them. I'm in the brotherhood. You are. You are. I know. Now it's a whole new world for you. I, I bet it's one of those things, you know, if you have a car and all of a sudden you like drive down the road, you're like 18 people have this car because instantly you just start seeing it because now you're you're a part of that world. Speaking of, of the busking and figuring out what you can and cannot do, are there permits, laws? Did you have to figure any of that out? Or is it a bit like, I'm going to set up, I'm going to start playing, and until someone tells me to stop, here I am. Yeah, I think one of the chief rules of travel in general is that it's easier to seek forgiveness than permission. So I just played. Um, mostly I was in tiny little villages, really. Um, only once did the police come um, and tell me off. And they said, uh, you're not allowed to be here. You have to come back tomorrow and buy a permit. And I said, well, I haven't got enough money, so I'll just walk out of town and see you later. So that only happened to me once, and um, it was friendly enough. So you were fine just setting up shop. Anything with other buskers? Like, were uh, you're in small towns, so were there interactions with other people who were busking? There were a couple of towns that were big enough to have a couple of other buskers. And actually, on the first morning, when I was so nervous and really near to just giving up before I began, this I met a, a Romanian busker who's playing the um, accordion. The accordion. He's playing the accordion. He was really good at it, playing some Romanian gypsy tune, and then swinging out of his bottle of wine. And he was really good, but. Um, I think he was probably half busker, half pickpocket. He was one of those kinds, but he was really good. And he gave me some confidence. He's like, come on, you can do this. Um, and in another town, someone saw me and he was a bit, I could see he was a bit cross. He was like, hey, you're on my territory. And I said, senor, I promise you I'm really bad. I'm I'm only going to make you look good. And I just made sure I was a couple of blocks away from him. And um, I never really had to do it in somewhere like Madrid, which I imagine might be a bit more complex and territorial and authoritarian. What were some of the funniest interactions or comments that you got from people? Oh, mostly, mostly it was just looks of bewilderment and astonishment and sometimes people wrinkling their noses like it was a bad smell. I mean, mo most of the interactions when you're busking are very, very brief. It's very much a body language experience, which is a, a great thing to do because it means you can do it regardless of language barriers. So wherever you are, you can get the vibe of people so mostly it was just uh body language as people walking past but i really enjoyed that feeling of connection because sometimes when you're playing for an hour or two and everyone ignores you you can feel like the loneliest man in the world and get a bit down especially because i 
was usually hungry. So you get quite lonely and feeling sorry for yourself. When someone just gives you a smile, really cheers you up. And the first little coin of the day is just, that's the magic one. Once you get the first coin, yes, I can buy something today. It might be just a carrot, but I can buy something. And that brings you confidence. And once you're confident, then you puff out your chest a bit, you smile, you play with more energy and more money follows. And it was a really interesting thing to notice that if everyone's feeling a bit depressed and couldn't be bothered, people kind of picked up on that and they didn't get any money. And the days when I was really cheerful and really going for it and happy with the world, people responded and gave me more money. So I had to try and just persuade myself to be in a happy place. And then it, you eventually become happy. Did people then kind of like, did people come to you and say, hey, you're really bad. Why are you doing this? I mean, or did they think it was a joke or did they think, obviously you don't know everyone's head that walked by you, but what was kind of the feedback you got? Because you, as you said, you knew, hey, I've been doing this seven months. I am certainly not the type that would normally busk. I mean, normally it's people who have some pretty good musical chops. I've heard some incredible buskers and you're thinking, wow, why aren't you playing a concert, right? Or, you know, somewhere at an arena. What do you think they thought? That it, that it was a joke or that you were oblivious to how bad it was? Well, I think the, the body language and the signals are quite interesting because I, I had quite a big backpack with me because I was hiking a long way. So I had my backpack at my feet and I, you know, I'm fair, I'm fair skinned, fair haired. I don't look like most Spanish people. So I kind of looked like a foreigner with a big backpack. Was I hiking? So I looked a bit perhaps interesting like that. I'm quite a friendly, non-threatening looking guy. So I don't think I'm particularly menacing for people to come up and talk to me. So often it was in the intervals when I when I stopped a song to change my music sheets or to have a drink or a little sit down, people would come up to talk. And then it was often a case of, yeah, who are you? What are you doing? Why? Because also, what are you doing in this little town? We have no tourists in this town. This is not a tourist trail. What are you doing here? You're clearly not from around here. Why have you come to our tiny village to play so badly? Um, and then I and then I would explain the book and the trip that I was doing. Um, but I had a rule to myself that I I didn't want to be. For example, I didn't want a big sign saying very bad busker trying to walk across Spain because that felt to me a bit like begging. I wanted to be earning my money. And I know there's a very fine line between the two, but I really wanted to feel that I was working for the money I earned. So, but it was nice when I, when people approached me, I could then have conversations about the, the book that I was following and the route. Um, and it's not at all famous in Spain. So people were quite curious, but generally hadn't heard of the book that I was following. And I should, I should add actually that my Spanish is pretty good, which is a real, help for the trip to be I, so the entire month i did the entire month in spanish I didn't speak english at all um except for what some uh, english teachers spoke to me for about five minutes and it just really annoyed me that i'd broken my month of unbroken spanish but apart from that the whole trip was in spanish and that as always makes it so much more of a rewarding experience so you were you were willing to tell people that this was an experiment and everything you were doing, but you didn't want to lead with that because you didn't want it to be a, a, a charity case necessarily. Like you wanted to make it by playing, even if it wasn't that great, but you certainly also weren't prideful enough to be like, no, like you weren't going to lie. And be like, oh, I'm a professional busker. What? You don't think this is good stuff? Yeah. Come on. No, no, no. So I, uh, I, yeah, you're ex that summary is good. And the point of, um, 
having the conversation, I think, then answered people's curiosity of, you're quite a dirty guy. You've got a backpack. You're terrible at the violin. And then if I could add to that, say, well, I'm actually following the route of a book that I love. I'm a writer and I'm a filmmaker. So that's another thing, actually. I, Although I was had no money, I was usually really hungry and hardly had any food. I had a couple of thousand dollars worth of cameras pointing at me at different times because I was filming the whole experience as well, which, which adds a, another layer of complexity to the whole experience of it. Yeah, and another reason why someone in a small Spanish town would be like, what exactly is going on with this dude? Like, yeah. okay. What yeah. were some of your biggest scores when it when it comes to either generosity of people, whether that be financially, you know, hey, this guy gave me this amount. And also, were there experiences where people took you in, you stayed in people's houses, they gave you dinner, they gave you food? What were some of those memorable events there? So I don't want to sound ungrateful to Spain, but from my travels over many years, generally... I've got so accustomed to the ridiculous kindness of the world that I, I don't I don't want to take it for granted because that's a terrible thing to do. But you do kind of think if I go to this country, someone will take me to their house and give me loads of food. And that's the way the world works. That didn't really happen in Spain for several different reasons. So only only one night did I get invited to stay with a family. And it was quite late on in the trip. And I actually was I was getting to the point where I was pretty fed up with the trip. It came just at the right time. This guy uh, invited me back to his house and I had a shower and then he took me out to meet his friends. Um, and I had one day off at his house, just his mum just cooking me endless food. It was, so that was a lovely experience. Generally, though, it's just snap acts of kindness out on the road. Um, I had a rule, which was that every day I earned money, I had to spend all of the money that day. So that tomorrow, once again, I'd be back to zero and scared and desperate all over again. Okay, so I, I didn't know that. That's wow. You like to impose these uh, very strict rules and laws on yourself. I like it. I like it. Yeah, yeah. I like to make my life miserable. So that, yeah, that I felt. You know, because in theory, otherwise, I could have stayed in the first plaza on day one till I earned two hundred bucks and then taking an Uber to Madrid. So I wanted this feast and famine and terror and vulnerability. So that meant my my diet and things varied. So on bad days, some days I'd arrive in a village thinking, I'm going to play in this place. And I get there and it was tiny and there's no chance to earn money. And then I'd have to just go into half rations, so carrot sandwiches, till I, till I could get to another town tomorrow. Uh, but my glorious day, one of the best days of my life, I got to this small little touristy town on a Sunday morning um and i set up to play and in two hours i earned 20 euros it was just ridiculous like i just it's like going to the yukon and hitting gold i was so rich i just couldn't believe it. the money was just flowing and on top of that a tour bus parked just nearby um and they gave me two cans of coca-cola as well so i was like whoa this is the best in my life but i then had to spend 20 euros so i went and bought ice cream and peanuts you'll be glad here i stuffed my face uh, and that was just one of the glory days of my life. And then, of course, you wake up the next morning and you got no money and you're hungry again. Yeah, you said that you were kind of nearing the end of your rope when that when that guy took you in, the, the only person in Spain who took you in. What was it that was so frustrating to you? Was it just the rebooting every day? Was it the fact that you were super hungry 
were you getting sick of your own songs because you're only playing five songs? What do you like if you're ranking them? You're saying this on the annoyance factor was really, really high. Well, you know, when you when you've been traveling for a while and this was a short trip, but any amount of time you travel, you're a stranger in every town. So you answer the same questions every day. And at times that's quaint and charming and part of the deal. And at times you just think, oh, I'm done with this now. I just want someone to know me. So there's that part of it. Also, I was walking about 20 to 30 miles every day on really not much food. So I was hungry and getting quite tired and a bit weak. Uh, my my music was terrible. And I was just getting quite fed up of carrot sandwiches and banana sandwiches and starting to just dream of a cold beer. So, yeah, I think I was just a bit jaded with the road. There was, by and large, this trip was the about the happiest journey I've ever done in my entire life. Um, unlike a lot of my experiences, which have been very deliberately masochistic and torturous. Um, in this trip, I was genuinely happy, but you know, I was ready for a shower and a beer basically. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of those other trips because it's funny. You're saying how, how miserable it was at times. And you say, but this was a high point for me. This was one (laughs) of the best I've ever done. (laughs) So, I mean, you, to have these self-imposed things, you've taken some of these other adventures. Looking back on it now, and, and you've been doing it, you said, for about 20 years, what are some of the, if you had to pick, I guess, and again, this is like having you pick a kid, right? It, it, it's not a fair question, but I'm going to ask it for you anyway. What are some of the ones that you say, man, this this adventure was just something special? Like this was, this stands out above some of the other ones. Do you mean special good or special miserable? I mean, special, however you want to define it. Okay. Um, Well, I'd have to choose my first big adventure because I think everyone has to choose their first big adventure. My first big adventure, though, just so happened to be the biggest one I've ever done and the biggest I will ever do. So four years by myself cycling um, through 60 countries around the world on a budget of $10,000. So that, that, that has affected pretty much the rest of my life like anyone's first adventure does so i'll pick that one i'd also pick for spectacular misery 45 days rowing across the atlantic ocean so you're awake for two hours sleep for two hours awake for two hours sleep for two hours you get crazy sleep deprivation horrible hallucinations which are well i mean could be hilarious could be fun in a safe environment but on a rowing boat in the middle of the ocean are just dangerous and ridiculous and exhausting um and it's simultaneously terrifying and extremely boring so that one really stands out for misery and Um, you did that one when 2012 i when in 20 okay so that would have all right that was before we did our podcast but i don't remember talking about that one so much well the reason we spoke would have been 2014 would be when i started to do micro adventures which was the deliberate opposite of all of this big stuff the campaign i started to do to make adventures small local cheap accessible um, in terms of my other big trips i lo- see i like each trip for a different reason so i crossed iceland coast to coast unsupported so that means you have to carry everything you need so i had a 40 kilos that's about 90 pound backpack with a month's worth of food and I love that just for the wilderness and the beauty of Iceland, um, as anyone who has Instagram these days can see. Um, and then I walked across India for the complete opposite reason, which was to immerse myself in the noise and chaos of a billion people and all of their stories. So I think there's such a variety of different reasons that 
you choose to go traveling and that you choose to go on a, a big adventure. Do you foresee yourself doing another, I, I guess we'll say another big adventure like the ones that you just mentioned? My adventures have got significantly smaller for two reasons. One, I'm a lazy middle-aged man now. And a lot of the, I look back at my younger self, like the me cycling around the world and boy, I was an angry young man. <laughs> I could not put myself through that now. I do not have such a chip on my shoulder anymore. So my approach to the world has changed a lot. The other big change is that I'm now a dad and therefore uh, I have uh, far less time to go off on big adventures. So um, Spain, I managed to negotiate um, a month away. Uh, but by and large, I think my big trips are on pause for a few years. Yeah, so that, w that would constitute and probably be one of the biggest trips you're going to do recently is something like the Spain, busking through Spain. It's going to be a month. Yeah, it's a hard thing, though, because um, we people love traveling for all sorts of reasons, and I completely do. But the extra difficulty I have is that it's also my job. And, you know, in order for me to pay my bills, I need to be adventuring. And that becomes a really, really difficult thing to try and do when you're also trying to be a stay-at-home dad. And I, the Spain book is actually about 50% about busking and 50% about trying to figure out how to balance trying to be a, da a good dad and also an adventurous soul. So I think, yeah, that's pretty, probably the biggest thing I'll do for a while. Yeah, let's, let's dive into that a bit because a middle-aged father is not obviously what most people would consider as an adventurer, right? I mean, like you said, you did all this crazy stuff in your 20s, took off for four years, decided you were going to go through the desert, walk through Iceland. You know, obviously all those things were hard and had obstacles, but ultimately there, there wasn't the big obstacles of, hey, now I've got responsibilities. And those include other human beings who are counting on me, like your kids. So what how are you balancing that and and do you feel like some pangs of maybe not regret because you've done it, but pangs of like man i i want to try to get that feeling back or are you able to to have that feeling with some of the micro adventures that that you take on um i think i've been balancing the two things spectacularly badly for quite a few years you know i'm trying my best to be a good dad, to be a good husband, um, to be around. I do all the school runs, all that sort of stuff. Um, so I'm trying my best to do that and to enjoy it. And I do enjoy lots of it. Of course I do. And it's, it feels fulfilling and it feels the right thing to do. On the other hand, in my heart, I'm still a 25-year-old vagabond who just wants to shove my um, passport in my pocket, jump on my bike and cycle off to the sunset. And I think that's not an uncommon feeling for parents to have that 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 struggle between the the self versus the the collective us. Um, and I've found that really hard. I suspect I've probably found it harder for most, just because I spent fifteen years of my life being incredibly selfish and uh, having a wild old time. So I found it very difficult. Um, the first thing that really started to help was this idea of micro adventures I had, which was trying to think. Okay, I can't go cycle around the world for four years because I've got to take the kids to school tomorrow. Maybe I can go cycle for three hours really fast and then put my tent up on a hill, sleep on a hill, swim in a river, wake up at sunrise with the birds, 
zoom back home in time for breakfast, having had a burst of wilderness and adventure and exercise and freedom, but trying to make that compatible with real life. So, so the whole I started changing from big adventures to doing micro adventures to to writing about them and blogging about them and making films about them and eventually to writing a book about them. And it's done really well, well, really well by my standards. And I think the reason it's done well is because so many people can relate to that. I'm, I'm sure you can. I would imagine a large number of people listening to this can also relate to trying to be an adventurous soul, but also having a job, a mortgage and a family and a cat. It's a hard thing to juggle. Yeah. What do you think your children and, and what age are they at this point? Now? Or yeah. Then? Yeah. Now. Now they're uh, nine and seven. So what do you think that they think of their dad? Uh, you know, because you can regale them with these stories and it's it's like the old grandpa in the corner, not that you're that age yet, but, you know, uh, telling the war stories and you sit there and you're kind of, they're so removed from maybe that side of you because now they're like, oh, dad, he just sits out in the shed and records podcasts. Oh, adventurer. Yeah. So what do you think that that they are now that they're nine and seven and and coming of age where they can understand a lot of what's going on? How is it impacting life and, and what do they think of you? Well, I think they think like anyone thinks of their dad that he's a bit boring and a bit of a loser. So um, and that is just very normal. So um, we we talk quite a lot about the adventures I've done, mostly because they're you know kids. They're learning about all sorts of places in the world. So I mention it from time to time for that sort of thing. The thing that they that they're currently most interested in though is I've written I've written a few books for children, and they're coming be- to being the right sort of age for those books now. So that's really nice. I wrote a book about cycling around the world, but a kids book, and the star of the kids book is called uh, Tom, which is my son's name. So he loves having a book, and now my daughter. She's now clamoring, where's my book? So I'm currently turning my Rowing the Atlantic into a story called The Girl Who Rode the Ocean, starring her. Um, and actually, she was just saying today, can I have my picture on the cover? Because I will be the girl who rode the ocean. And I said to her, but you didn't row the ocean. I rode the ocean. I'm having my picture on this. So uh, so they, they enjoy the book sides of things, I think, um, as much as any of the other stuff. And, and apart from that, we just do – I don't want us to do extreme – stuff with them because i want them to just choose to want to travel and have adventures not that it's forced upon them so at the moment we'll just do whatever they want and we'll see if they become more curious for travel later do they seem to have that built in do they seem to be naturally pretty adventurous curious i think they're both enjoy being outside mostly because i enjoy being outside so um, and whenever I, I'm a bit hyperactive, so whenever we go to the park, uh, I'm not very good at sitting with all the other parents on the on the benches with my with my smartphone. I tend to go and see if I can climb the tree with the sign saying "Do not climb" because this is dangerous. Or I try and swing off the monkey bars. Or when there's a river, I go and jump in the river in my in my underwear, much to their embarrassment. And then and they started to do that as well. So I think um, and climbing trees has become a big passion of mine. So I think. Well, like anything in parenting, it's you can tell them something to do, but in fact, the, what you've actually got to do is show them and then see whether they choose to follow or not. But trying to encourage them to be curious and wild and bold, they're my three personal mission statements for being a dad. How has that affected your relationship with other adventures and explorers? Because I always said this, I don't know if I said it on the podcast with you or whether it was with Dave or whatever, you kind of have this group and i don't know how tight everyone is but i always 
hear of adventurers and always seems to be all you Brits over there doing these crazy things. Maybe you just have to get out, right? Um, how has that been? Because obviously there's people, you know, who you came up with in this in this niche, right? And everyone's getting older and some people are, are getting families and stuff like that. Do you see yourself as a little bit of a role model for, for people who might be a little younger or at a stage just below where you were? Like they they don't have kids yet, but they're thinking about it. Hey, how can I lead this life of adventure and have kids? Do, does that happen in, in your group? Yeah, you're there. You're right. There is, is this a weird community of British adventure folk, and we all we we get on pretty well and socialize and go drinking at times. Um, uh, and I think you know I've actually for quite a few years just been very very jealous of the freedom that they still have. And so I think my wise old man advice to them has been, hey make the most of the time you've had, which of course is what every boring old man says to every youth in history. But I look back now on my time before kids, like, what? why wasn't I writing novels and traveling to China? What was I doing with my time? Um, so, I, so I've actually been quite jealous of the free. I think I didn't appreciate my freedom till it's gone. You don't know what you've got till it's gone, as the poet Janet Jackson said. <laughs> uh so i think it's been that but yeah uh, now of course there's there's now the young upstarts and it's quite interesting i just watched watched this week a um really nice short video on vimeo of some guy filming his first bikepacking trip through the andes um and when i cycle through the andes i didn't have a video camera and instagram didn't exist and i'm actually so i watched this loving remembering so many things and part of me thinking man what great memories this guy's got because he's filmed it and I didn't. But most of me just thinks, boy, I'm so glad that I was traveling the world before there was any societal pressure on me to share beautifully curated content every day. And I could just enjoy the trip and then write my diary in the evening and then four years later, turn it into a book. So that's my old man grumbles. I like that because it is, I think we all grow up in a time where we think, hopefully, hey, we're fortunate that we grew up in this time. I remember thinking, I'm so glad I went th through high school without a, a cell phone and, and texting and Facebook and stuff like that, because we don't know any other way. And that usually means that we're, we're positive, right? We, we had a positive experience. And so we say, I'm glad I had this before this came to ruin it for me, right? What do you think with adventuring? Because now there is, you know, you, you've been in it and you've been at it for 15, 20 years. You've You've gotten sponsorships, you've had movies, you've done books, so you've you've reached a bit of a pinnacle when it comes to to an an explorer. And now you do have other people coming up and and trying to to get into the game. How has it changed and what do you think it looks like going forward? Well, I think the two aspects of trying to make your career out of travel and adventure. One is it's vastly more popular and possible than it was when I began. Travel and adventures become so mainstream and and every day, and therefore there's so many opportunities if you want to choose to make it into your job. Um, the downside is that more and more people want to make it into their job. So um, as the barriers to entry have lowered, it means there's more noise, and to do it well, you have to scrabble, I guess, to rise above everyone else. The tools are out there for everyone now 
Um, so, you know, anyone can write a book, make a movie, be on social media, self-publish on Amazon. Anyone can start a podcast. Anyone can do any of this stuff tomorrow. So I think the important thing, though, that sometimes people forget is that if you want to be an adventurer, the first thing you need to do is go have an adventure. And so often people get in touch with me to say, oh, I want to be a full time adventurer. I need to come. What, what's some brand advice? And do you have an agent and blah, 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 blah. And I feel like a grumpy old man when I say, young man, what you need to do is get on a bicycle, cycle for four years, come back, and then we'll talk. And there's, there is some truth to that, though, I think. If you want to make your career in it, the first thing you need to do is try and become an expert in whatever you do. And generally in travel, you do that by going out to the world, making a lot of mistakes, and then coming back with some sort of knowledge and point of difference to share. Yeah, what does that look like for you now? Because you mentioned one of the tough parts is that it's not just something you love to do, but it is your job. And and now with a kid and or uh, multiple kids and a house and a mortgage, right? You can't just fluff off and say, "All right, yep, here we go." Six months. Uh, some your buddy calls you up with a crazy idea. We're gonna shoot a video on this. And you're like, "Yeah, let's do it." What have you found works for you? to be able to continue to be able to speak on adventure and, and be an adventurer while leading also a normal, quote-unquote, normal domesticated life? Uh, yeah, I found that quite a challenge in terms of my own self-respect, really. Um, I didn't want to be one of those people who did something exciting once and then spends the rest of their life living off that, uh, nor did I be want to be one of those people who doesn't do anything very much but fluffs it up to be amazing and uh, that there's the social media influencer world is full of that sort of thing so what I needed to try and do was just for my own self-respect was try and get a balance between talking about the stuff that I've done and the lessons I've got from that but also evolving the approaches I have to adventure and so that's the, for the micro adventures or playing my violin so doing different things that still feel adventurous that still challenging me and giving me new material to write about and talk about uh, in a way that feels good to me. And what, what I've noticed is that so long as whenever I start to feel a bit of a fraud inside, or if ever I start to do things when I think I'm doing this to get famous, or I'm doing this to get money, and that you have that sort of icky feeling in yourself, those all those things never really go that well. But whenever I come up with a project that just really excites me for my own personal reasons, whether that's cycling around the world, my first micro adventures, or learning to play the violin, and I just feel thrilled about the idea, they're ultimately actually always the things that earn me the most money because it comes out with the best, most original, most passionate stories. Yeah, and I, it's a cool point that you made with the idea of self-respect and, and, and where do you fall in? Because I know one of the great things that I get to do is chat to people all over the world doing amazing things, people like you who have had these crazy adventures that I've never had. But then, and so I'm equal parts motivated and also like, wait a second, I didn't do like, who am I? I didn't cycle around the world for four years. I didn't go across Iceland. And so you're a little bit, you're motivated and inspired, but you're also a little bit I, I guess you feel down on yourself, right? You're, you're hard on yourself and, and kind of beat yourself up. And I think sometimes you have to remember that you've given up certain things to do that. And now you've come out on the other side and say, well, now I'm giving up some of that to be able to have this life. And it, it's 
I mean, it's a hard lesson to learn. It's not one that you can snap your fingers and say, yeah, now I feel great. It's like almost day by day, right? Where you're like, oh, today feels good. And tomorrow I'm like, dang it, I just want to get out there and explore, you know? Yeah, I think, well, there's a few things, isn't there? There's the the choices that you make to how you will allocate your time and your money and your efforts in life. It's also very important to not believe everything you see on the internet about people uh, and their adventures and to not ever believe the myth that these people having a perfect life and your life sucks because almost invariably I found that people who go on huge long travels um, are either doing it to run away for something or they come back home and think man my life has peaked out there and then find being home quite hard so I think it's measuring yourself is a inevitable but foolish thing to do um, and then just to just to try to not be hard on yourself but take the inspiration bit think right so I'd like this idea how can I apply this within my own life, within my constraints of the money and time I have and within my personality of what I dare to do and what excites me? And that, I think, is why a lot of people have gone to go sleep on a hill, for example. They think, oh, I'm not going to cycle around the world because um, I've got more sense, but I like the idea of being outside, so I'll go sleep on a hill for a night. Um, I think that's the important thing. And I really might the, – the, the species of social media that I despise the most – are those who give it the whole follow your dreams and you can be anything you want mantra. I find that really toxic because most of them, uh, mummy and daddy bought them some nice large house in the middle of London and life's quite easy. So I think that's a really unhelpful thing. I think the a more helpful thing is to say dream big by all means, but then acknowledge that life's a bit rubbish and then do something small. But that doesn't look quite as good on an Instagram post. Right. It's not as sexy. You're not getting as many <laughs> likes and clicks if you say that. But it is way, way, way more honest. One of the things that I just want to touch on right as as we get to the end here, and we talked a lot about this in the first podcast. So if we if you guys are interested in this idea of micro adventures, by all means, let's go, you know, go listen to that and we dive, you know, a whole podcast on micro adventures. But I just want you to explain to some people or maybe give some examples of some really neat micro adventures that either you've taken or you've inspired and, and seen the micro adventure community take, because this is uh, this is a lot of people listening. This is their reality of, hey, I I want to go cycle around the world. I'm not going to be able to, but I certainly can build some adventure into my day to day life, or or take a week off or something like that. So, what are some of those to get people's brains firing and going? Um, some of those ideas of micro adventures that you've seen really work well for people and be awesome experiences in a truncated amount of time. So what I, what I tried to do was to look at, look at the reasons why I love adventure and try and replicate that in the real world. And also look at the barriers that stop people having adventures, both the genuine ones, which really comes down to time or money basically and then all the internal ones in our heads. I'm not good enough. People like me can't do this. I haven't got a $400 raincoat. All the endless chatter in our heads that stops us doing that stuff. And, and then trying to combine the two. This is the good stuff. This is what's stopping us. What can we do? So you're not going to go uh, walk all the way across Iceland. So why don't you walk a lap around your house? If you go for a, If you walk out to two miles from your house, walk a circle... And walk back again that's 15 miles so you could do that after work one evening walk out walk a lap of your house camp out in a hammock somewhere you will in two in that two mile circle see things you've never seen before in your life 
if you want to go canoe down the Yukon, but you can't afford a canoe, um, get some tractor inner tubes, the big tubes you put in tractor tires. I've got four of them for 50 pounds, about $50. Drift down the river with those. When the sun sets, get out on the riverbank, camp out on the riverbank with your friends. That's wilderness and simplicity for very little. Uh, if you want some sort of minimalist, simple experience go build a wooden shelter in the woods sleep in that you won't sleep at all because it'd be so uncomfortable but that's the point you come home grateful for normal life um even smaller still one thing i've been doing this year is my i'm pretty busy at the moment so my calendar on the first of each month pops up saying go climb a tree and uh, i go climb an oak tree near my house um takes me about 10 minutes to get there five minutes to climb the tree i sit there look around for a few minutes at seeing how nature's changed in the last month, think about my past month, have a little think about what's coming next month, come back down to the tree, get back to my computer. And the first time I did that, I thought, oh, that's quite nice. Second time, oh, that's quite nice. Now it's May, I've done it five times. I'm now loving it. This regular thing of go to my tree, see how the world's changed, see how I've changed. So just trying to squeeze tiny little habits of adventure into your busy daily life, I think is the key to, to micro adventures. I love that you did a, a a very a micro micro adventure there with the tree, but you also systematized that adventure by saying I'm going to do it the first of every month. Usually, we think of adventures having to be spontaneous and oh, this is happening to me. I'm going to do it seat of my pants. You're saying I'm actually planning adventure like every month. I'm going to go take this, which is something that I think seems counterintuitive to most people, but is also something that probably gives you a bit of a thing to look forward to, right? If you're in the middle of the month, not that you can't climb the tree then, but you're saying like, I know this is coming up. I know I'm going to have that those few moments of solitude. But also it forces me to stop procrastinating because it'll pop up the first of month and I'll be busy. I'll have like 10 things in my calendar that day. And I could easily just think, oh, I'll do it next week. Oh, I'll do it next week. Oh, I'll do it next week. But if you think, no, I'll do it now. Of course you can make time for half an hour. I'll just turn off Twitter. I'll actually go and climb a tree. Uh, but 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 also the spontaneity applies. I have a small little bag with my a hammock, my sleeping stuff, a little stove. And on a nice sunny evening, if I suddenly don't have much to do and my family goes to sleep, last Sunday night, 10 p.m., it was pitch dark. I cycled out to the woods, slept out there, woke up at sunrise with a bird song, had a cup of coffee and was back home at half past five in the morning before anyone was awake. And I could do two hours of book writing before the school week began. So so there's the spontane spontaneous side as well. But the thing to do is to just stop making excuses and uh, stop blaming everything and just go and do what you can. That's the key, I think. Do, do you tell your family when you do those little uh, overnight Johnson Woods? Are you like, you come home and be like, hey, guy, rub it in a little bit. Like, I just had a micro adventure. Are you trying to do it on the sly so they don't even know? I tell my wife so she doesn't phone the police. Uh, but yeah, I just go off. I just go. And I love actually when I have a fire and you come home, and you smell of wood smoke. I really, I always try and go into London unwashed on those days. So I reek of smoke on the train. And everyone either thinks you're a weirdo or they look at me and they think, I'm jealous. <laughs> nice, nice. Mostly the weirdo. Yeah, I would assume it'd be 90% weirdo, 10% jealous. <laughs> On a good day, maybe it's 90-10, yeah, yeah. right? Bring it back really quickly to the book. I wanted to touch on what was your biggest travel mishap. And obviously, in this setting, you, you were essentially setting yourself up for mishaps. That that was the whole thing. Like, hey, I've got no money. Uh, I'm, you know, I can't really play the violin. You're setting yourself up for mishaps. What was one that sticks in your mind as, as 
maybe the biggest one or the one that left you the the most like, all right, this is going to make for a story, a good story later on from that month that you spent in Spain busking? Well, one of the problems with trying to write a book about this trip is that actually nothing went wrong at all for the entire trip. It was quite an interesting experience. Um, well, firstly, I was really conscious thinking, I'm writing a book about this and nothing bad's happening. This book's going to be terrible. So nothing bad happened at all. But I think the interesting aspect of that is because I went there just embracing disaster, saying bad stuff will happen. That's the whole point. Let's go. And I think having that attitude is really helpful if you turn up and turning up, say, in India or some country that feels a little bit crazy to you, where you're if you're trying to be over plan and be nervous and be cautious, then you're going to be in for a terrible time. Whereas if you're just if you can force yourself to be vulnerable and relaxed and go, we'll see what happens, then actually that becomes a strength and you sort of flow with things better. So I don't really have a case from that. My best disaster story is probably from um, walking a thousand miles across the empty quarter desert, pulling this huge cart with about 700 pounds of food and water. And I had this great idea that walking across a desert, obviously just going in a straight line, therefore we'll simplify things by not putting any steering into our cart. So I made this cart that had zero steering, so it could only go in a perfectly straight line, which I thought was a perfectly sensible idea until literally 10 seconds into the trip when we had to make our first tiny little adjustment and instead you had to heave 700 pounds, uh, off we go, 100 meters later. Uh. So after about two kilometers and two hours, we completely failed, had to uh, quit, go back into Salala in Oman, fight into the back streets to find all these sort of immigrant welder guys from Bangladesh who thought we were idiots but had infinitely more common sense and practical skills than we did and we spent about three days with them welding and sawing and hacking and putting some steering mechanism on the cart and of course that turned out to be the most enjoyable part of the entire experience so disaster is generally a good part of adventure. And if you guys are interested in the empty quarter story itself that you you actually made into a film right like yeah. an hour uh, hour long or something like that yeah we made an hour-long film which we sell or the 20 minute festival cuts free on youtube okay awesome what do you have coming up in the pipeline then i mean we're gonna well let's first talk about the book here the book as we're releasing this we, we little bit of foresight little bit of organizational skills here we're releasing this podcast on the day that your book is getting released in the u.s so if people are interested in that, where should they go? How can they find that? Well, it should be available in hardback, Kindle, and Audible from today. Um, and then hopefully, uh, if my publisher does their job, then it should be in all good bookstores. Um, yeah. And then I made a film of this. That's going to be coming out in the autumn. But I've been chopping up my film over Instagram over if you scroll back through May of my Instagram, you'll see, the, you'll see vis- video proof of how bad I am at the violin. Awesome. And that's My Midsummer Morning, correct? Yeah, that's right. My Midsummer Morning. And then if people want to find you and all the other adventures that you've been doing, because there's a lot now. We talked about some of them. There's a lot in the queue and you've got a lot of books and you've got tons of movies. Like People could really immerse themselves in Alistair Humphreys for a good five days of binging if they really wanted to. What's the best way for them to find all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think I think for your audience, the most useful book, well, maybe my microadventures book, but I also wrote a book called Grand Adventures, which was based on the theory that if you save up $20 a week 
for a year. By the end of the year, you'll have a thousand dollars and then you can go do something extraordinary. Um, but my books and my videos and my social media, everything you'll find. And also I've written 2000 blog posts about advising people how to go travel uh, is all at alistairhumphreys.com. And no matter how badly you spell my name, being a weird British name, then hopefully 20 years of SEO, Google should find you okay. Awesome. Awesome. Do you have anything else coming in the pipeline? I mean, I know we just you just put a book out. It just got released in the US today. But do you have any other projects or things that might be coming down the future that people are should be interested in or that you're excited about? The th- so I do. I have a news email newsletter, which I, sh- I know you read. Um, but I've started a new one called Living Adventurously, which you can get on my website. And I'm really excited about this. This is about trying to encourage people to live adventurously every day, regardless of how you personally choose to define that. So I'm really enjoying trying to branch out into thinking of travel and adventure a bit more metaphorically and broader um, in between going occasionally to climb a tree. I think that's what my life looks like these days. Awesome. Well, guys, we will link all that up in the show notes. You can get that extra pack of peanuts.com slash shows. As Alistair said, no matter how wrong you spell his name, he will probably pop up in one of those first search results there. So you can check out everything that he's got there. I know I fell down the rabbit hole, Alistair, a bit when I was like, oh, what has he been up to? I mean, yeah, I follow the newsletter and all. I'm like, what has he been up to? And then I was poking around and watching different festival cuts and <laughs> where's the full length version. So I've got a little list of uh, catching up I have to do. So lots of good stuff there. And uh, I'm super excited for my Midsummer Morning coming out. Um, It's already been out in the UK, so people can get it, but in the US coming out today. So I just want to thank you so much for coming back on, catching up um, after five long years. I know when you wrote that email, you're like, it's been five years, we're getting old. I was thinking, yeah, it's been a long time. A lot has changed. I've got a kid, another one on the way. Your kids are growing up. It's absolutely crazy. But um, thank you for inspiring everyone out there to be an adventurer, whether that means busking through Spain with no money, whether that means heading out your front door, climbing a tree, going a walk somewhere new. Um, Super inspiring. So I just want to thank you for coming on and uh, taking the time to chat with me from your shed. My pleasure. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. I'll see you in five years when you'll be running an old man's gardening podcast. That's right. And my kids at that point will be almost to the age that your kids are now. So I guess, hey... I it's don't know. It's a good age. Yeah. It's a good age. So I'll have to come to you for some for some dad advice. That, that'll be it. I'll be like gardening and dad advice podcast. How about that? <laughs> Brilliant. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today for your continued support. That makes us number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. And until next time, happy free travels. I'll show you-